From the studios of Advancing Vibrant Communities in Modesto, California, this is Lighthouse Live Radio on the Lighthouse Live International Podcasting Network. Welcome to Lighthouse Live, the radio voice of advancing vibrant communities. Our mission is to motivate believers to move out from the four walls of the church to personally serve the needs of their neighborhoods. Get ready for a no-holds-barred, honest look at the Christian lifestyle the way Christ commanded it to be. All that and more coming right up here on Lighthouse Live. And good afternoon to you, Pastor Mike Douglas here. Welcome to Lighthouse Live. Of Whoa, that kind of crept us on us there. Uh, Mike Douglas with you here on Lighthouse Live. Great to have you with us here on the Lighthouse Live International Podcasting Network. Special welcome to all of you joining us on the Internet and uh, those of you listening to our uh, archive broadcasts as well. So good to have you with us. Again, our producer and uh, co-host Elaine Harlan, still in Israel, uh, coming back. And, in fact, we'll be doing a special program with Elaine here in just about a week and I look forward uh, to that. Also joining us at that point will be Lee and Sandy Anderson, who also had the opportunity to uh, lead that tour to the Holy Land, so we'll have some time to uh, debrief with them. Today our guest, though, a longtime friend and one of our favorite people here, Mike Winther, uh, welcoming here to Lighthouse Live. Mike, great to have you with us. That's great to be here. And uh, a little bit later on today we're going to be talking about uh, Christian worldviews, biblical worldviews, and uh, the uh, moral relativism that has crept uh, not only into our society, Mike, but I think uh, into, unfortunately, our, our churches as well in terms of our uh, of our Christian worldviews. It is everywhere. It is, uh, absolutely. Right now, though, we want to take the opportunity to check in with our weekly update from our friends from Voice of the Martyrs. What will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find that it's true? Hey, this is Toby Mack with news of another real-life Jesus freak. It's 301 A.D. Armenia. Fourteen years in prison has left Gregory pale and gaunt, but more committed to Christ than ever. The king has grown bitter and mad because even though he has had many Christians tortured and killed, the gospel continues to spread. Despite all warnings, Gregory insists on a private audience with the king. After a scuffle and a long silence, the two men emerge from the king's chambers as friends. Armenia becomes the first country to legalize Christianity. The king's family is baptized, and the bold prisoner earns the name Gregory the Illuminator. Will you take a stand? Go to persecution.com. And back with your live here on Lighthouse Live. You know, Mike, uh, we, we have it fairly easy. Here in America, I mean, we we face things like court decisions that that annoy us, and but that's more like a, a fly, I think, swatting a fly. And 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 yet there are people around the world uh, who really are are uh, enduring pain and suffering and sometimes death for their faith, and it it uh, really um, causes us to reflect on the blessings that we have, and uh, and the need to come back to the Lord and just thank Him, and and also to take advantage of it and be good stewards of that freedom, isn't it? 
Oh, it's true. I think the church has gone from being participants in the uh, great battles of the world to being spectators. Mm. And even now, we've probably stepped out of the spectator role. The average Christian doesn't even want to watch the battles that are going on. Yeah, and that's uh, that's so important. Speaking of watching the battles that go that are going on, let's check in right now with our friend Brad Dacus in the Pacific Justice Institute. It's time for the Legal Edge: a look at your rights as a Christian, a parent, and a citizen. And now, with a look at what's happening on the legal front, the president of the Pacific Justice Institute. Brad Dacus. Five members of the Sacramento Public Library Authority Board reaffirmed their vote to allow unfiltered access to porn at area libraries. Despite concerns from parents, librarians, and students, and information from the Pacific Justice Institute attorney Matt McReynolds, the board held its offensive position. Well, an ACLU attorney had the audacity to argue that free porn must be available to the homeless in our libraries. This board should be ashamed for listening to such nonsense. So-called public servants who support only rights with no regard for responsibility make a mockery of our laws and our constitution. I'm Brad Dacus. To find out more about the Legal Edge, call 916-857-6900 or log on at pacificjustice.org. And just a reminder, friends, uh, Brad Dacus is bringing back his uh, legal seminar for pastors uh, on February 12th. 2008, and uh, we encourage you to take advantage of that. Uh, Mike, you were there, I think, this past. Wasn't that a great time? What's really interesting is to get the, you know, we all make, well, maybe you don't, but occasionally we make jokes about attorneys, uh, you know, but. (laughs) Oh, those are jokes? (laughs) (laughs) There there are some, there are some uh, folks, really, that are doing some wonderful, pro bono, uh, for the uh, cause of Christ and, and really to use the uh, principles of the Constitution uh, to, to its fullest and go back to, I think, a, more of a constructionist uh, perspective. And a uh, wonderful opportunity, by the way, if you're involved in any kind of ministry in an administrative setting, this is a wonders, wonderful seminar. Again, it's uh, a legal, uh, although it, it was... Not boring, though, wasn't Mike? No, I was impressed with how rapid fire it was. I mean, you come away from this thing saying, I didn't waste a single minute. The presentations were short. They weren't verbose. They were short, to the point, and yet in-depth. And only about three hours, I think, you know, 10 to 1 p.m., and we may expand that a little bit on the next time around next February. But uh, keep uh, keep an eye out for it. You can call us here uh, at ABC, Advancing Vibrant Communities, for more, more information on that. If you'd like more information about the Pacific Justice Institute, again, we encourage you to support them not only in prayer but financially as well. Their phone number, one 9129 That's one 305 9129 and their excellent website, www.pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. And speaking of serving friends, a couple of opportunities here through Advancing Vibrant Communities. Um, we have a, you know, it's springtime, and we get a mass of requests coming in for yard cleanups. A lot of disabled and elderly people who uh, cannot physically clean their own yards and and, uh, cannot afford to have that done either. If you have a small group or uh, you have a weed whacker that's available, I just uh, tune mine up for the spring. It's ready to go. Uh, We would certainly be able to use uh, your efforts and and your skills to help with many of these folks. Also, um, our Energizer bunny, John Engel. As you know, John's been down sick for about a month 
and a half now, but John is rebounding and can't wait to get back to uh, instructing people how to build these wheelchair ramps and and uh, walking ramps that we've been building uh, with, in cooperation with GMS Metals and Turlock. If you uh, have some skills, uh, for example, if you can uh, pour concrete, if you know how to shoot an anchor into concrete, those types of things, we'd love to have you help us. Uh, we have about four or five more ramps that we need to finish up, and uh, John is not physically able to do that anymore, but he can sure uh, provide instruction on how to do that. If you could help us out with those four or five ramps, why we'd uh, love to talk to you. Our phone number here, 209-544-9571. That's 209-544-9571. Or you can log into our website at vibrantcommunities.org. That's vibrantcommunities.org. Click on the little red flashy dealy there. That uh, icon will take you to our daily update page, and uh, we uh, post the most recent opportunities to serve on there. Also, the Volunteer Center of the United Way lets us know that the Relay for Life with the American Cancer Society is coming up. In fact, uh, my daughter, a 13-year-old daughter, and my wife uh, participate in that uh, coming up here very quickly. And it's a great way to support uh, their uh, efforts to uh, defeat cancer and their uh, support their research. The uh, 24-hour relay event will be celebrated on April 28 and 29 in Ceres, Oakdale, Ripon, and Tuolumne on May 5th and 6th in Manteca, May 19 and 20 in Patterson and Tracy, on June 2nd and 3rd in Riverbank, and June 9 and 10 in Lodi and Stockton. Finally, June 23rd and 24th in Modesto and Turlock. Any volunteers uh, on the first day of each rally to register walkers and teams, assist with sales and setup of uh, VIPs for the uh, ceremony honoring, honoring cancer victims, and also help with other activities during the event. And on Sunday, they assist with cleanup at the conclusion of the event uh, at all sites. If you'd like more information on that, how to help with the Relay for Life for the American Cancer Society, call our friend Barbara Borba at the Volunteer Center of the United Way. That's 209-524-1307. That's 209-524-1307. She's at extension 113. Again, that's Barbara Borba of the Volunteer Center of the United Way. Again, friends, our guest, a longtime friend here at Lighthouse Live, Mike Winther, and uh, we were just talking um, before the program, Mike, about uh, our moral relativism in society, and, and it's awfully hard to combat that once it seeps in. But before we get going, you are involved in a great new endeavor that God has called you to uh, give us a little insights into what's happening and what kind of progress we're making. Well, about two years ago, we founded an organization called the Institute for Principal Studies. And uh, the name is a mouthful, but it's intended to be a Christian think tank. And those not familiar with the term think tank, there are uh, numerous think tanks across America that do research and education, and uh, most of these relating to public policy uh, matters. And uh, most think tanks come from a secular, uh, non-Christian perspective. Um, there are Republican think tanks and Democrat think tanks, and there's environmentalist think tanks, and there's you know all across the spectrum, all sorts of social issues and political issues. Uh, but we noticed a real shortage of organizations that were trying to teach biblical principles and do research and writing on those those principles. And so we, uh, myself and a number of other individuals, got together and formed IPS, Institute for Principal Studies. And our main objective is to refine, research, and clarify what biblical principles are for our society and to teach those principles whenever and wherever we can. 
You know, you go back to Deuteronomy 6 and that wonderful passage there <laughs> you know, where the nation of Israel is instructed really to, uh, in, in a very matter-of-fact way, a very practical way, and uh, a way that uh, happens in everyday life throughout uh, every minute, every breathing minute, to impart the, the principles. And yet I think in today's society, Mike, we've lost really that, um, that importance uh, of, of imparting our what what we've grown up with in terms of our biblical heritage, and uh, we we leave it to Sunday school, or we leave it to the church, or we leave it to somebody else. Uh, but God really has given us the mandate to impart that to our childrens with intentionality. Absolutely. Um, what's really interesting is I think most of us, the modern church, don't realize that we don't have a complete biblical worldview, mm-hmm. and myself included. And we tend to think, okay, <clears throat> I've got this Christianity thing down, and my challenge now is to impart what I know to my children. Uh, well, that is a good goal. But if what we know is only 10% of what God would have us know, mm. imparting 10% to our children is not uh, not adequate to adequate duty. And most of the biblical principles that have been refined out of Scripture and tested throughout time uh, have been written about by a number of non-biblical sources uh, analyzing, gee, what does Scripture mean by this? Mm-hmm. Uh, our founding fathers had studied a lot of these kinds of documents. And I have with me today uh, a book that contains a lot of the writings of John Adams. And John Adams, among many of the founders, goes through and talks about principles of good government and where they come from in Scripture and why Scripture produces one kind of government and not another kind of government. It's true of all the governments, not just what we would consider civil government, it's true of family government. It's true of church government as well. And so what's happened is most of us nowadays, we were educated in uh, secular schools, most of mm-hmm. us. And frankly, even Christian schools in America, since about the time of the Civil War, have not taught the biblical principles that our founding fathers understood. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we have a vacuum. And the exciting thing is that the church is now waking up to this. There's a lot of great ministries that are working on these these things. And as we go back to Scripture, there's just a wealth of principle that we can apply to the modern world. Yeah, that's so important, Mike. You know, we, we tend to, uh, like when we're sick, we, we get so wrapped up in the symptom. We want the symptom to go away, and once it does, we're okay. But the root cause, the root disease, the, the principle that's involved has to be uncovered in order for there to be... A, uh, a lasting effect and and some some healing that needs to take place take place just before we leave that for the Institute of Principal Studies. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like advancing vibrant communities. I know. We, you know we, we, why did we do names, that? Right? I don't know why we did that. <laughs> but anyway, but, uh, all okay. the good names were taken. <laughs> all the good names were taken. <laughs> <laughs> How can uh, people find uh, more about that, uh, Mike? Well, uh, they can call us. Uh, they can call at area code two zero nine five seven five two thousand five. Uh, or they can uh, check our website out, which is principalstudies.org, and that's P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E, studies, S-T-U-D-I-E-S. Um, there is the P-A-L version of principal. That's the guy that runs the school. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we are the P-L-E kind of principal, which is a fundamental concept. Right. Again, our guest today, Mike Winther, as we look at biblical worldviews and moral relativism in our in our society. And Mike, that that term moral relativism has been thrown around a lot on talk radio, and it's almost become, in some cases, people let it blow by and don't even think about what it means. Let's talk a little bit about what relativism means and the inherent danger that's involved with it. Yeah, that's a great question. 
You know, God has, well, you know, for most of us have ever wrestled with a decision in life, uh, we know there's lots of difficult decisions. Uh, oftentimes when I face a difficult decision, I, I find myself struggling and I may even go to scripture and, uh, I mean, if it gets to be really difficult, you know, you go to prayer even, I mean, gee, it gets really bad, you know, when Has you it have come to do to that. that. Right. That's right. Um, and what is amazing if you think about it is that this decision, whatever it is we're making, would not be a difficult decision for God. Mm-hmm. And yet we struggle with these decisions. And we see so many things in life as gray area. And the gray area is what we kind of refer to as that intermediate area where things are neither good nor bad or you can't quite tell. And, uh, uh, you know, from God's perspective, the world is not full of very much gray area. Mm-hmm. From God's perspective, the world tends to be pretty much black and white. <clears throat> there's good and there's evil, there's right and there's wrong. And, you know, that doesn't mean our choice of lunch today. You know, it may not be a moral decision whether we eat at one fast food chain versus another. But for a lot of decisions that uh, are black and white, are right and wrong decisions, we tend to think of them as being gray area decisions. Mm -hmm. And selfishly, I think we like that as humans. Because if it's a gray area decision, then we are not as guilty if we make the wrong decision. And we we tend to always want to compare ourselves to others and say, well, gee, I'm not as bad as that guy over there, so I must be pretty pretty good. So the idea of relativism is that um, there are no absolutes, essentially, Uh, that everything is just relative and what's right for you may be wrong for me and vice versa, and there's no absolute standards. And really, if you take an evolutionist view Mm -hmm. of the source of the world, that would be the logical outcome. Mm. If we all just evolved... One evolved creature has one view of morality. A different evolved creature, uh, even your next-door neighbor, might have a different view of morality. Uh, In an evolutionary world, there is nothing to cause one view of morality or one worldview to trump another one. Uh, But that, of course, is not the way the world is. God created the world. God creates absolute truth. And so it is our job to try to discern those issues for which there is a black and white, where there is absolute truth. And in government, I I oftentimes uh, am asked to meet with people who are considering a run for public office. And oftentimes they want me to endorse them or help their campaign. And invariably I offer to meet and have coffee or lunch with them. And I always ask at least one question. I ask a lot of them, but one question they always ask. And I ask them this. What is your framework or your tool for deciding the proper role of government? Mm. If we elect you to Sacramento or if we elect you to Washington, D.C., and a bill comes across your desk, how are you going to know if this measure, this bill, is a proper role of government? And modern-day teaching in the schools, and it's not that modern. It goes back 100 years. Government classes in our schools have taught that if the majority of people wants to do something, that's what we should do. And the only answer, usually I get no answer to that question. Uh, I mean, they they've never thought about that question mm. before. Uh, if you do get an answer, the answer is usually, well, I'll represent my constituency. Uh, to which any good mother would answer, gee, if your constituents jumped off a cliff, would yeah. you jump off a cliff too? Right. Uh, so we've trained to this idea of relativism. And in politics, we don't stop to think, wait a minute, is there a proper role of government? Is there a line in the sand? You might call it a bright line that separates what government should do from what government should not do. And people in the modern world don't want to have a bright line. They want it to be a gray area. 
and uh, we go on this side of the line, we go on the other side of the line, it's, it's no big deal. You know, uh, Mike, Josh McDowell was in town uh, about a month or two ago, I think it was, and, and one of the things that he brought up was that in, in our postmodern world, whatever label you want to put on it, uh, that the, our, our young people are approaching uh, their, uh, their schooling with, with this paradigm. If it's true... Uh, there, there's two ways to look at it. One is, if, if it's true, it works. The other side of it is, if it works, then it's true. Mm-hmm. You and I pretty much grew up with, the Bible is true, God's Word is true, therefore it works. But the new paradigm, apparently, is, well, if it doesn't work, then it's not true. You know, And uh, with, with that kind of uh, gray area, it's awfully hard. It's like grabbing a jello. It's awfully hard to... To hang on to an anchor somewhere uh, when when you face these kind of decisions, and I would say, Mike, what well, what would happen if if we went to Congress today, and you asked that question? I, my guess is probably ninety five percent of the people we would ask that question to, uh, who are currently legislators, uh, would not be able to provide a satisfactory answer. No, they don't have a line in the sand that mm-hmm. separates proper from improper government activity. But, you know, our legislators are only a reflection of the people that elect them. That's right. And for those people listening that say, gee, I'm not really interested in in public affairs or government or or these issues, uh, well, if you're not interested in it, then how do you expect those that you elect to be interested Mm -hmm. in it? And if you don't know the proper role of government, then how can you elect someone who knows the proper role of government? And and this is the challenge. And uh, part of the core of our ministry is a series of courses. Uh, We offer a 10-week course called Biblical Principles of Government. And we typically teach that in the evenings. As a matter of fact, uh, we'll probably be teaching it twice uh, this fall, uh, once in the Modesto-Turlock area, and a different night of the week, a different parallel class uh, happening probably over in the uh, Castro Valley area. And for people who are interested, uh, this is a a 10-week class, two hours per week. Uh, We normally meet at 7 in the evening. It's a 7 to 9 class. And uh, if people are interested, they could sure go to our website. There's a link there to contact us. They could drop an email, or they could just call our phone number, and uh, we'll put them on a list and get them a, a notice. And we have found that people who didn't think they're interested in government come to this class and are just blown away by what they didn't know. You know, I, I was sitting in part of one of the very early uh, classes that you did many, 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 many years ago, and uh, it is truly fascinating. And, and I guarantee, friends, that if you go. Uh, number one, you will you will acknowledge what you don't know, uh, but then have the opportunity to really bring into focus what government is is really should be under under God's uh, under God's paradigms. And I guess, Mike, we we struggle with with two things there, especially today. Um, what is an, in in God's um, idea of government? What should it be? And as we look at our Constitution and where we are now. What should it be in, in relation to our, our Constitution? I, I think things have kind of moved over, over the years, haven't they? Oh, boy, they have. You have to start with understanding that God ordains three institutions in society. Uh, there is, in order of creation, there's the family, the first God-ordained institution. Uh, next is the church. <clears throat> and uh, uh, then last comes civil government. And each uh, institution are given certain, certain duties. Uh, scripture gives the administration of the sacraments to the church. Uh, scripture gives uh, the raising of children to, to the parents. And all these duties are, are delineated. As a matter of fact, the punishment of the murderer, the evildoer, uh, the power of the sword, as Scripture refers to it, is given to civil government. 
So the first thing you want to do if you're trying to define the lines between what government should and shouldn't do is you look at those scriptural scriptural standards. Uh, it's real interesting how we tend to think that government should solve every problem. Uh, and I should be more uh, specific, I guess. We tend to think that civil government, or what you call the state, uh, should solve every problem. The truth of the matter is God desires that most problems be solved by the family uh, or the church or the individual. Absolutely. And, and charity is a great example. Uh, when our nation was founded, uh, our founding fathers never envisioned that the government would be administering charity. Absolutely. Uh, they understood from Scripture that that was the job of, first of all, the individual to, to work and not be lazy. If the individual couldn't provide for themselves for legitimate reason, it was then the job of the family. Uh, he who does not take care of his own family is worse than an infidel, as we're right. told in Scripture. Uh, if the family can't do it, then it falls on the, the church and the local volunteer community. But what we've done is we've created a whole society that says, oh, gee, if charity's good, then it must be good no matter who does it. Mm. And so now we have government doing charity. Mm. And in our classes, oftentimes we'll write two words up on the board. I will write the word charity on one side, and I will write the word theft on the other side. And I'll have the class go through and give me the properties or characteristics of each. And it's interesting when you compare charity and theft, they are identical in every way. They have all the same properties except for one. In charity, the giver gives willingly. Mm. And in theft, the giver gives unwillingly. Right. And uh, the great example I like to use of uh, the hypothetical neighborhood where uh, uh, you may have a very poor neighbor on one side of you and you have a wealthy neighbor on the other side of you. And the poor neighbors in need of some help. <clears throat> Their car breaks down and so they need a car and a bunch of other things. And I always ask students, uh, are you legitimately justified in helping and giving your car, your money, to the poor neighbor? And everybody can answer, sure. You know, it's no problem giving away your own things. As a matter of fact, if we're Christians, we're probably commanded to, to do that. Then I expand the question and say, well, if it goes beyond your ability to help that neighbor, is it morally permissible for you to go and ask your rich neighbor to help the poor neighbor? Everyone, everyone said, well, sure. You can go solicit on behalf of the poor neighbor and ask the rich neighbor to help. And then you say, okay, what if the rich neighbor chooses not to give? Do you have the moral authority? Is it biblically valid to take your gun and go to the rich neighbor and forcibly make him contribute to your poor neighbor? And everyone sees the error in that. Sure. Uh, every Christian would understand why that's wrong. And so we look at that as individuals. We know what our standards are for, for charity. Then the question I always ask and follow up is, okay, if you're elected to the city council, now do you have the power as a city councilman to force the rich neighbor to give money to the poor neighbor? And if the answer is yes, then the question is, where did that power come from? Mm -hmm. How did you get that moral authority? And if you study scripture on this matter, you'll discover that that moral authority can't come from scripture because nowhere in scripture is that authority given. Right. You know, Mike, uh, I worked in government for about 20 years before entering the ministry full time. And there are some things that government does fairly well, and and you know, and no surprise probably those happen to be the areas that God ordained right. that government should do. But when we get into ministering uh, to to some of the deep needs of people, whether they be the physical needs or spiritual needs or emotional needs, you know, frankly, government doesn't do a great job there, and it's because you know God ordained that the church 
should be uh, taking that role, and we've abdicated that to government. And it, and it is, I mean, that's our bailiwick here. It is hard to motivate believers uh, to to serve and, until we can get under their skin a little bit and say, let's go back to the, these original principles here and realize that this is not a choice. This is a mandate. This This is what we are to do. And Satan wants the church not to do charity hmm. because charity is a great evangelistic tool. Yes. But when the government does charity... The evangelism disappears. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, when, when we give to those in need, we are blessed. And if we are Christians, there are rewards in heaven based on our performance. Right. You know, we don't gain salvation by our deeds. But once you have that salvation, then there are rewards in heaven based on, on what you do. Uh, and if we give to the poor, that adds to our rewards in heaven. Uh, Paul is pretty clear about that in the New, in the, uh, New Testament. But if we are forced by Caesar or by the government to give charity against our will and we're not cheerful givers, there's no reward in heaven. Absolutely. And, and you know, the amazing thing is that poverty rarely is an economic problem. Poverty normally stems because of some other need. Mm-hmm. Either there's a health problem, <clears throat> there is a spiritual problem or a laziness problem, uh, there may be a drug problem, there may be any number of, of problems. And to think that you can solve poverty by throwing money at it, when money is really not the root cause. Uh, if someone is, is elderly and uh, somewhat disabled, uh, the cause of their poverty is that. Well, who can best minister to those needs? Mm-hmm. The Absolutely. church can. Absolutely. And while we're meeting those physical needs, of course, we're there to explain the gospel and meet the spiritual needs. You know, and, and in that regard, Mike, often more is caught than taught uh, you know, when you're ministering to people. That opens the door. That gives you the credibility. We have so many people that come to us and say, why are you doing this? Well, what a great opening yeah. to share why. And, and it, it, it really gives people, yeah, gives people a whole new idea of what the church and, and what Christ is, uh, is all about. Friends, we're speaking with Mike Winther. We're talking about uh, moral relativism. We're talking about principles of government and uh, how God sees it and, unfortunately, how we've uh, taken a left or right turn, depending on your per- perspective there. We'll be back with Mike Winther in just a moment. Here's Lee Greenwood here on Lighthouse Live.
with you my grace shall heal Let the hero born of woman Crush the serpent with his heel Since my God is marching on He has sounded forth the trumpet That shall never call retreat He is sifting out the hearts of men Before his judgment seat Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him Be jubilant, my feet Our God is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Oh, glory, glory, hallelujah That's Lee Greenwood, Battle Hymn of the Republic, and you're listening to Lighthouse Live. Again, a special welcome and thank you to all of you joining us on the International Podcasting Network. Great to have you with us. Our guest this week, Mike Winther, as we're talking about biblical principles, worldviews, and uh, where we've lost some ground, but more importantly, how we can gain that information back and a solid foundation. Uh, to pass on to uh, pass on to our children, Mike. Before the break, we were just talking about uh, the importance of a good foundation, and uh, how the lack of that foundation can cause us to abdicate certain things to government that the church ought to be doing, and abdicate certain things to government that the family ought to be doing. And isn't it interesting that in both cases? Um, we have really taken the response of many of the responsibilities of both the church and the family and expected government to fulfill those. And, uh, again, no matter how good or, uh, um, adept a government may be, it just can't fulfill those kind of roles because God didn't have, uh, have that in his equation from the beginning, right? It is way too easy for us to farm out our responsibilities. Hmm. Uh, you know, government comes along and says, oh, you've been doing this task and it's hard for you. We'll do it for you. And that's been true of charity. Uh, it's largely true of education. You know, education is amazing if you study um, education in the history of America. Uh, most of us think in terms of public schools and we think, well, it's always been that way. Uh, it's not always been that way. As a matter of fact, the idea of a public school, a, a government-funded school, uh, was very, very rare in the colonies. And actually, it was uh, Boston, Massachusetts, that first started with the first public-slash-government schools. Up to that time, uh, parents educated at home. They hired a school marm, or they just collectively, voluntarily, built a schoolhouse and started a school. And the amazing thing is, in that haphazard educational system, we had an, a, a literacy rate that would just astound the world. And look at some of the great minds that came out of that era. Oh, yeah. I mean, generally, kids are going right out of homeschooling, out of the little schoolhouse, right to Harvard, where Harvard expected that you knew English, Greek, and Latin fluently. Mm. And that was just a a standard. Uh, John Adams uh, was discussing the colonies and education and their importance. 
and uh, he has some interesting things to say. He says this. Now, keep in mind that uh, he's writing here um, uh, just prior to the establishment of our Constitution. He says, A native of America who cannot read and write is as rare an appearance as a Jacobite or Roman Catholic. That is, as rare as a comet or an earthquake. Mm. It has been observed that all of us are lawyers, divines, politicians, and philosophers. And I have good authorities to say that all candid foreigners who have passed through this country and converse freely with all sorts of people here will allow that they have never seen so much knowledge and so much civility among the common people in any part of the known world. Wow. And that was achieved before we had compulsory education laws. Mm. You weren't required to send your kids to school in those days. Uh, there was no <clears throat> taxpayer-funded uh, government education, uh, not a U.S. Department of Education, and yet we were well-educated. But parents were heavily involved, and that doesn't mean they did all the teaching. They hired teachers, and kids went to schools. Uh, but the parents didn't just pick the closest school and let their kids just hike off there. Uh, parents were actively involved. And you, you mentioned the Deuteronomy 6 passage earlier. Yeah, that Deuteronomy 6 passage says that you train up your, your child, and it basically says you teach them in the morning when they wake up, you teach them in the gateposts, you teach them along the way, you teach them at noon, you teach them in the evening. And the modern parent has to say, well, how can I do that if they're off at school for mm. six or seven hours a day? And I, I don't know. I, I think we need to reevaluate uh, the importance of parents in education. And I think parents, regardless of where and how their kids are schooled, parents have to take a much more proactive role in educating their kids. Absolutely. And, of course, that, that comes back to the importance of the parents having a good foundation to pass, to pass along in, uh, in the first place. Mike, let's talk about some of the efforts. Uh, you, you mentioned the uh, uh, biblical principles uh, class, but let's talk about generally some efforts that are going on to, uh, to help buoy up our, uh, our foundations in, in biblical knowledge and how we apply those to, to our lives. Yeah, among the approaches of our organization, and I mentioned this 10-week course, which is kind of the, the core of what we do, um, we are beginning to work with school teachers, and primarily uh, Christian school teachers, because we come from a Christian foundation, uh, although we've been blessed to be able to have some public school teachers take our classes, and that's a great thing. They can take some of that and take it back to their public school students. But by and large, our next focus is to try to educate Christian school teachers. And there's a great academic activity, which uh, you know we're involved in. My wife and I, for a number of years, have coached high school debate. And debate is one of those areas that most people have heard of, but not that many people ever participated in in school. The power of debate is that students learn to research. They learn logic. Uh, they learn to identify logical fallacies. Uh, they learn to speak and communicate. And they debate on public policy issues. Yeah, we've been involved with the homeschool debate group now for about eight years, and we have just seen amazing fruit as to the educational skills that these kids pick up. Well, right now, there really is not a debate league for private Christian schools. Now, private Christian schools can participate in the public school debate leagues, but there's a number of reasons why most of them don't want to do that. Um, uh, the standards of behavior and those things uh, are somewhat different than what we might expect our Christian kids to to engage in. So uh, Institute for Principal Studies will, in the 2007-2008 school year, be starting a debate league for private Christian schools. Mm -hmm. And we'll go into schools, we'll uh, help them identify a teacher who's willing to become the debate coach, 
and we'll do training and instruction that teacher, show them how to do classes to instruct the students. And this is a great avenue for teaching worldview, but it's also just a great avenue for teaching our kids how to communicate clearly. Mike, isn't, uh, and maybe you've seen this as well, I just sense, and I, I'm looking at it from the perspective of a pastor who's had, a, you know, a bazillion couples come in for counseling. And, and what I'm really amazed at is the lack of skill at being able to put your thoughts together. And, uh, and, and, and really very little skill in being able to communicate well. And, and really what it comes down to, I, I think, uh, in, in many ways, um, and perhaps it's because of the emphases on testing or whatever it might be, but we've lost our capacity to think well. I mean, God has given us this wonderful brain mm-hmm. here, and really we, we've seen a lack of skill in terms of being able to think with logic and using the principles that that, uh, that we have. Have you seen that as well, this, this whole issue of, of being able to, to, you know, you think, well, I think about things, but no, in, in really, how do you reason? Reason seems to be a lost art, in, 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 even in the church culture. Well, it is. I mean, anyone who's around uh, high school kids very much uh, <laughs> understands their, their lack of clarity with the, the King's English. Uh, you know, like I was going totally to the bank within the day, and, you know, it's every other word is like and totally. And the ability to communicate clearly and succinctly yeah. is um, it's in danger in America. Yeah. But what's very interesting to me is I believe there's a link between language and how we think. Uh, most people think that, okay, you have these thoughts boiling inside your head, and the language is how they come out. And that is true. But generally, when we think and we contemplate, <clears throat> we don't think and contemplate in a foreign language that's foreign to us. That's right. We think and contemplate in the language that we communicate with externally. So if our language is limited, our ability to put words and concepts together is limited, then our thinking will be limited. And so there's kind of a chicken-and-the-egg relationship between communication and thought. And you need thought, certainly, to produce communication, but you need good language and communication skills to produce better thought. And so as you improve communication skills, you actually improve thinking ability. Well, I'm just, as, you're, uh, as you're mentioning that, my mind is going back to uh, our, our Greek and Hebrew uh, <coughs> texts uh, in, in, uh, in the Bible and how a lot of the nuances that really uh, open up uh, what was meant by Scripture in context has to do with the original language that right. was in there. And once we understand that original language, uh, sometimes uh, a whole new light can be cast on a, on a verse, can't it? Yeah, our English word love certainly does not characterize agape love as the Greeks would have understood it. So uh, communication skills are are vitally important. And so Institute for Principal Studies is going to work to bring uh, this debate and communication activity to our Christian school students. We're already sponsoring homeschool debate clubs, so we're doing that in the homeschool front. And uh, I I think this is just going to be a great skill. We hope to uh, bring this to Northern California Christian schools in the next year. We hope to expand uh, the year after to all of California. And if God would choose to bless it, we want to expand the West Coast and eventually mm. nationwide. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I had the opportunity to sit in on a couple of those debates for, uh, for a couple of years, well, that's Mike. that's right. I and, forgot, yeah. And it was just abso- it, it, uh, absolutely was inspiring to see some of these young, uh, were they preteens, teenagers? Uh, you would have seen the ages 13 through 18. Okay, so, All right. so early, yeah, teenagers uh, just absolutely excel and be able to 
um, speak with that clarity that you were talking about, but in, in a relatively short amount of time, be able on the spot to put together some logical thoughts, put them in an order that made some sense, and then communicate them in a in a in a great way. And I just think back of, uh, to your uh, uh, quote there from from John Adams, and how that was probably more the uh, the rule than the exception back in his day. And now, uh, you know, for for some cases, it's uh, it's the other way around. What can parents do, Mike? What would you encourage them to do today? Uh, to begin to help to build that good foundation and to help build good thinking skills in our children. Wow, I couldn't have asked you to ask a better question. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I do conferences sometimes on this at homeschool conventions. And the first thing as parents that we have to do is, as I mentioned earlier, assume some responsibility. We have to recognize that really we are and should be the primary teachers of our children. Now, the second step, unfortunately, is we have to have something to teach them. And so what that means is we have to begin to educate ourselves. And uh, a great way to start, if, if the people in the listening audience have <clears throat> smaller kids at home, uh, really any age, but certainly junior high on down, they need to take family devotion time in the evening. And in addition to reading scripture and praying, they need to take that time to expose their children to some classic, classic works. Uh, a great work that is lost and unknown to a lot of modern Christians is Pilgrim's Progress. Yes. <clears throat> and Pilgrim's Progress is a great fictional work that characterizes the Christian walk from a biblical worldview perspective. Uh, there was a time when John Adams wrote what we read earlier, uh, <clears throat> there would not have been a student in the colonies that would not have read Pilgrim's Progress. And so it's a great time as a family to do that reading. And, and as you do that, what happens, mom and dad are educating themselves at the same time the kids are getting educated. And then you'll find in the course of the day that you'll be relating as, as decisions are made in the day or school problems happen, you'll be able to relate principles from what you read in Family Devotion Time about that book. Um, we like to, to kind of mix up our Family Devotion Time a little bit. And uh, we'll take some time to go through some, some classic fiction. Uh, there's some great fictional works that are historical fiction on the Scottish Covenanters mm -hmm. and the persecution they suffered for their faith. And this is just part of, of making Christianity real to our kids and rec recognizing that sacrifice can and should be part of Christianity. Uh, then I think the, the, so the first step is just taking responsibility. Second step, I think, is family devotion time. Educate yourself the same time you educate your kids. Uh, the next stage probably is to avail yourself of good classes and good material and good books. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage people to take part in our 10-week course. Um, in our 10-week course, each week we cover a different topic or segment of a biblical Christian worldview. And we offer books uh, for sale um, that complement that week's material. And so when we talk about creation, evolution, and biology in a particular week, we have books for sale that, that deal with that sort of thing. You can take those and make that part of a curriculum for your kids. Uh, when we talk about charity, we will have books that relate to charity. Uh, the week we talk about uh, the justice system, the criminal justice system, uh, we have books that relate to that. And so parents need to educate themselves um, along with their kids. And you know what? It is a joy. It's not a burden. That's right. When you start learning things like this and you learn them from a, a biblical worldview, it's not the same boring stuff. You know, in that process of discovery, 
as it's shared among the parents and the, and the yeah. kids is something else. Mike, we have to take a quick break. We'll be back with Mike Winther right after this. Deep needs, deep hurts, spreading far beyond the government's ability to help. Children, single moms and dads, the elderly, disabled, the homeless. Yet, thousands of resources that can meet those needs are sitting right now in the pews and seats of our churches. The challenge? Activating those resources and connecting them with the people in need. We have a proven solution, advancing vibrant communities. We bridge the gap. We connect people and churches with opportunities to serve the needs of their neighbors. Pure, simple, proven effective, advancing vibrant communities. What's our motivation? Jesus' command in Matthew 22:39 to love your neighbor as yourself. The church at large has a biblical mandate to serve the needs of the community. Advancing Vibrant Communities researches those needs, then finds volunteers with the skills and passions to meet those needs. The very first story that Mike told about AVC involves serving one of my church members whose needs I could not meet within my own community. And in that moment, God humbled me and asked me to open my heart and really listen. And as I saw the setup of the database, I realized that AVC is a wonderful partner with my own congregation. It helps us be more effective. This organization comes along and says, I'll do a lot of the groundwork and we'll discover the needs. And then those folks in your congregation who desire to be a part and who have these skills can volunteer. AVC partners with over 80 community and government agencies to help meet the needs of the city. We network with organizations like Habitat for Humanity, the American Red Cross, Salvation Army, the Area Agency on Aging, the School District, and the Police Department. Habitat and AVC is a perfect match in that we both have common missions of helping people get out of the four walls of the church, getting out into the community and helping others. AVC serves volunteers by finding ways for them to help others. AVC serves the needy through volunteer efforts with love, grace, mercy, and compassion. AVC serves churches by augmenting efforts to reach out and meet the needs of their neighbors. AVC serves businesses by helping create healthy neighborhoods, by connecting employees with opportunities to volunteer, and by providing opportunities to donate goods and services to legitimate needs in the community. You know, some of us can do donate a little money, some a little time, some one or the other or both. It really touched my heart that these strangers were interested in me and what I needed in my life. You know, it's not only hearing it, but it's seeing them, and it's being there in person and seeing the, the need that they have and hopefully being able to do something about it. I will tell you, as you know, your chief of police in the city of Modesto, we need your help in the community making a difference. Volunteer, I know we can put you to work. And I, I promise you, if you get involved, you'll feel better. You'll be happier. How can we partner with you to meet the needs of our city? We ask you to consider monthly financial support and to help recruit more volunteers. Advancing Vibrant Communities. Faith in action. Pure, simple, proven effective. Carrying out the biblical mandate to love our neighbors as ourselves. Thank you.
And back with you here on Lighthouse Live, our guest today is Mike Winther as we're talking about biblical worldviews and principles and uh, where we've uh, lost some ground, but more importantly, how we can gain some uh, ground back. Mike, interestingly enough, and this this uh, is, is really our heartbeat, we were talking about principles of charity uh, a few minutes ago. And uh, one of the things that, that we try to impart to our volunteers is that doing everything for someone so that they never have to take any ownership of their future really is doing them no favors, is it? Uh, you're right. I mean, self-reliance is a biblical concept. And uh, as long as you are capable and able, uh, one ought to be taking care of themselves. And if they're only partially able to take care of themselves, then they should be participating in, in that part. And uh, I think we have a um, what's been called an entitlement mentality. You know, there's there's a great line in the Charlie Brown Christmas thing where um, I think it's Lucy or somebody says, all I want is, oh, no, it's Sally, Charlie Brown's little brother, says, all I want is what I got coming to me. I just want my fair share. <laughs> and we all tend to be people right. just wanting our, our fair share. And, uh, of course, it's generally not a fair share because what we're doing is we're asking government to take it from one person and give it to us. Right. And, and, and here's the fundamental problem with the way that government or civics is taught in schools. Uh, I learned in school and even in college, that the political process <clears throat> was just a process by which people come together and they lobby for programs and aid, and through this democratic voting process, we decide how the pie is going to be divided up. And, and that's what's taught in modern schools. That is the essence of socialism, mm. that you put all your pie in the center of the table and you get together and you wrestle or you speak or you debate and you divide up the pie. Well, uh... I don't know if this happened to you in high school. When I was in high school and we didn't have a lot of money, a bunch of my buddies would be out. And after a basketball game or something, we'd be hungry. So we'd go for pizza. Well, we'd pool our, our money Absolutely. to buy a pizza. Exactly. And maybe I had $2 and Steve had one and Joe had four, right? So you order this large pizza or pizza comes, we sit down to eat. People don't have to, to think too hard to know that we all ate as fast as we could. <laughs> right. Because the faster you eat, the more pizza you're going to get. Right. whether you're the guy that put in $1 worth or the guy that put in $4 worth. And that is the problem with socialism. And socialism basically is a common sharing out of a common pool of things. Uh, essentially, socialism is government redistribution of wealth. Now, it's fine to have a common pool and sharing if people do it voluntarily, mm -hmm. if they do it biblically. But it is unbiblical to have a common pool of sharing when you force people to contribute to it. And I, there's a principle that I really believe, and I think sometimes we think that we can mock God and get away with it. Mm. And I hear people say, well, gee, you have to have all these government charity programs because if you didn't, what would happen to all the poor? Well, on the practical side, there's been a lot of good studies done that would indicate that the poor would do just fine and probably better off. But even if those studies didn't show that, as Christians, we have to think, wait a minute, we need to trust God and do it God's way. Yes. And see, our God is a God of the end result. Uh, God doesn't really expect us to produce an end result. He expects us to be faithful in the process. Amen. And there's a means, uh, a process by which we go through. And if we are obedient to God in the process, God will bless the outcome and he will bring about the end result. Mm. But the modern church does not have enough faith to say, oh, we'll just start doing it God's way. Because we think of all these practical objections that the world gives, saying, oh, this won't work. But what about if he doesn't come through? We don't say right. that, 
but but our actions really uh, belay the fact that uh, that that's what we're uh, thinking. You know, Mike, you mentioned the poor, and and of course, at, at advancing vibrant communities, our whole mission here is to get believers outside the four walls of their homes and their churches to serve, uh, with the idea that as you're serving, the door is open so that you can uh, share Christ but also to help develop that person so that according to whatever resources they have and understanding that some have uh, more than others, uh, they can become somewhat uh, self-reliant. Um, often at the conferences that, that we go to, to other ministries that are similarly minded, we say, you know, the poor will always be with us. That's a, uh, that's a truth from the Bible. But it doesn't have to be the same poor. That's a good point. You know? Yeah, really? and, and the Bible doesn't say that it has to be a third of our population. That, that's exactly <laughs> right. No, and I think the problem is that uh, there is a tough love component to charity. And uh, part of providing good biblically-based charity is knowing when not to give. Yes. And the Bible is clear that there are times that we should not give. And this, again, goes back to understanding biblical principles. And because the average Christian has delegated all our charity work to government, we haven't had to learn the biblical concepts of how it should be. And sure, it's easier not to have to learn those things, but we need to learn what are the biblical standards for giving charity, and that we need to be doing it ourselves. Mike, sadly, we're bumping the clock. Uh, you know, God has an eternity, but on this side, he's given us time limits. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds left. Any final thoughts uh, before we go today? Well, I think the key thing I'd leave people is to reevaluate their own thinking to see if there might be some relativism in their thought. Hmm. Friends, our uh, our guest today has been Mike Winther. If you'd like to get in touch with Mike, Mike, that phone number one more time. Uh, it's area code 209-575-2005. Great. And uh, take advantage of uh, many of the resources that they have. For now, this is Mike Douglas with The Lighthouse Live. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week.